0: My name is Brody Sharp from Melbourne, Australia. I am a running physiotherapist and host of the Run Smarter podcast. And welcome to the Training for Ultra podcast.
1: If we could just free ourselves of our perceived limitations and tap into our internal fires, the possibilities are endless. I'll tell you about it when it happened in the race, but to be honest with you, it happened even before the race. It happened in the training. Great cause. Oh, thanks. I just turned it that, man. So you keep doing, you do it, man. For
0: all you kids out there, stay safe and stay strong.
1: Hey everyone, it's the Training for Ultra podcast. Scott Jurek here.
0: I was physically totally wrecked. I, I had nothing left. I figured I might as well move as quickly as possible towards the finish line if I
1: was going to be moving towards it anyways. How do you even do that? Decided if I could, you know, finish a 50 miler. I could probably run across the country. 100 miles is not that far. Welcome to episode 187 of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name's Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra. We have a great episode. We have Brody Sharp on. He is the host of the Run Smarter podcast. Brody's an Australian runner and a physiotherapist who, through his books, clinics, podcasts, and a plethora of interviews, has provided runners all over the world with the resources for recovering and preventing running injuries. So it's something that all of us ultra runners deal with. I don't know if we talk about it enough. So I definitely think Brody's podcast has become you know one of the top globally for a reason. It's, it's a necessity to focus in more on injury prevention than probably a lot of other areas. So we dive in. I tried to get to know Brody a little bit before we went head deep into the, the scientific running details that he just is almost encyclopedic about. Um, so it was really fascinating conversation and, and uh, definitely recommend checking out his podcast. He interviewed me. So we talked for, oh, I think, almost two and a half hours. I was, I was pretty sleep deprived going into it. I hope you enjoy this episode. Very excited to have you! I've seen you, uh, seen you in the charts. Your podcast is crushing it. You're doing great work. You're helping educate so many runners around the globe. So thank you for joining me on the podcast.
0: Thanks, Rob. Coming from you, that's a that's a massive deal for me. So I really appreciate the kind words.
1: I mean, truly, it's an honor. Where Where are you joining us from today?
0: Uh- I am from Melbourne, Australia. So the southern, uh, eastern, southern part of Australia.
1: And with COVID and everything taking place, are you even allowed to leave the country? Like, have you been basically locked into Australia for a year now, or how's yeah, that?
0: Going? Pretty much. We're Because we're an island in the middle of nowhere, we can kind of isolate ourselves from other countries. But um, every now and then, restrictions will ease so that we can skip across to New Zealand and back. But the cases fluctuate and so lockdown has different restrictions depending what time of the year. And so currently we can't do that, but um, yeah, it, it changes here and there.
1: I mean, I, I feel for you. I think um, my buddy Dean Carnassus got stuck in Australia and just decided to like run across the country or something to <laughs> that effect. Um, yeah. How has that been on you mentally? Like, have you been able to... Like, did you have to rework races or or tell me more about that? Like, would you typically be traveling to the States or like Europe or or anywhere during the normal course of a a normal year?
0: Yeah, well, uh, me and my family actually had a a trip planned to Italy probably five months into our lockdown. Like, we booked our flights for the next year and then that got cancelled and so we're not doing that. But similar to the rest of the world, like... Uh, running races got cancelled or postponed. Um, Being in Melbourne, being in Victoria, we had cases. We had three months of zero cases. And so things were starting to open back up again. And then all of a sudden there's like hotspots. And so races were on, then they're cancelled, then they are on, then they're cancelled, then they're postponed. And so it's very hard to concentrate on something or visualise something because it's this time of the year where I love doing some trail runs. We have a trail run series here in Melbourne and it's hard to focus on something and so mentally it's mentally is in limbo we're kind of getting through like it was fine say for 12 months of lockdown but now we're getting into it was just like last year we had we reached 200 days of being in hard lockdown um here and there not all at once but uh accumulatively and it's yeah it's starting to slowly take its its toll and people are starting to get slightly fed up
1: wow I mean, I I had a friend, Lucy, that I was going to do a film with at Western States, but there was just no way to escape Australia. Like, it's super, I I feel for you. I mean, I can't comprehend 200 days, though.
0: Yeah, it's Um, tough.
1: So how, how has running changed in Australia? And for you, for that matter, have you been able to do any group runs or are you just solo runs right
0: now? um right now you it's solo runs like it's changed here and there like our restrictions have eased eased a lot and then gone back into lockdown eased again and so the timing of it has it depends where in the last two years we find ourselves but um currently we we have like radiuses on our house like we can't exercise more than five k's away from where you reside um and it needs to be within a well you can have like a one person bubble, but then it's eased to like groups of five then it's eased to groups of 10 outdoors. And so, yeah, races, races are a no go, but they have, um, small groups here and there. As soon as like restrictions ease, that's like the first thing that we can do. And so running with friends, running with, um, small groups is, is still permitted. Like as soon as you, as soon as we ease back a little bit.
1: Oh my gosh. I, we could have a whole podcast on this. It's like, yeah, how, it's fascinating. How do you get your log run in? Like, how do you how do you run beyond 3 miles? Like uh yeah. is that do you have to do like a circumference around your house?
0: It's it's not very strictly held. Like you you could probably run a little bit more and I know a lot of runners who just don't abide to the 5k radius, but um I'm blessed that I have this creek trail near my house that's kind of goes around the house you can almost run you can run about 10 15 k's without exceeding the 5k radius if that makes sense it kind of goes around yeah um and so uh doing loops do, doing laps um those sort of things it makes it makes it nice but as long as i'm near water as long as i'm near like a flowing creek or river and i've got some nature that i can run run through uh, it's it's very like mentally relieving as well
1: I had this was all a setup the you know the local police had this all this whole conversation set up. We had <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> Strava police already and you know, <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, man, I mean that sounds like a great setup. I know who I'm staying with when I'm in Australia next time uh yeah or or for the first time, I should say more than welcome so so, so having that local trail, i mean, has that made you more of a a trail runner? As of late, than, than um, road running.
0: Well, previously, previously I had another because I've lived in this area for the last year. Previously, before that, I had another creek trail that I loved running around. Um, when I very first became a runner, when I was living with my parents, they had a very very nice um, kind of outbacky kind of trail where we're seeing a lot of kangaroos, um, a lot of wildlife, and. It's what actually sparked my motivation for running—just getting out into fresh air and getting into nature. And so I've always been drawn to the being out in nature rather than just road running or just running on the pavement, running through the streets. Um, it's sort of what kept me running. What where my passion kind of uh, stemmed from. So yeah, I've always found close to a, a run that's close to that that sort of feel that you get around moving water. And yeah, it's what I've stuck to.
1: It's beautiful. I I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, shifting gears a little bit as, as COVID and that 200 day lockdown you're going through affected your podcast because your podcast has grown in popularity. Do you think you're focusing a little bit more time on your interviews and educating people?
0: It's funny, like, um, say two years ago was when I shifted from working as a physiotherapist in clinics to doing my own thing, which all I wanted to do even prior to COVID was run my own online physio clinic for runners. And so that meant that I could treat runners around the world, whatever injury, and the, the podcast was stemming from that. It was educating runners to take control of their injuries, overcome their injuries, increase their running performance safely. And so once we went into lockdown, um, it was probably about three months into me starting this online business. And so that kind of just thrived from there because I was seeing people from New Zealand. I was seeing people who were in lockdown and couldn't see their actual physio. And then all of a sudden there was this online physio that sees runners. And so they were more drawn to to that option. Um, But then I found that growing the podcast and reaching more people and educating more people actually just helped the business side of things as well, because more people would listen, more people would learn about me. Um, They would then, if they were struggling to overcome their injury themselves, they would give me a call or reach out to me on social media. And so, it kind of became fortuitous that, I guess, that I was in lockdown and had to work on my business because it's it's a full-time gig. But then also, the rest of the world in lockdown they needed that that sort of guidance they needed that education so it all kind of just fell into place
1: i mean i i can't tell you how many times i've talked to people where they've seen covid as like an opportunity to either go after their dreams or they just make the most of the situation and you are just like a a perfect example of of that so and I'll tell you what—you're a lot easier to interview than like a Kipchoge. You just segue perfectly into <laughs> injury prevention, which I want to make the main topic of this interview because I'm—I'm I'm a huge proponent of it. I like—I literally—I I mentor people, and step one of any like conversation I have is like, you got to start listening to your body. And I want to start with that. Like, how would you advise people on becoming better attuned with their body and and listening closer to their body and knowing when that muscle tear is so close, like, you know, like that, that one injury that's going to set them back for months and months. And you got to be honest because they don't want you giving bad advice and then they have to call you to get more advice. (laughs) I'm kidding.
0: But um, but in all seriousness,
1: like, what what advice do you have?
0: It's funny. Like, I try my best to – my goal is for someone to listen to my lessons and then they don't need me. That's that's the number one goal I have, for someone to sort of overcome their injury themselves or realize these injury prevention principles – and then they don't need me. That's, that's great. That's the one I want. But the, the part B is that if they can't do it themselves, if they really have learned these principles and then they really struggle to and they need that tailored guidance, hopefully I'm the first one that they think about. And so that's kind of how I've developed this. So when I do offer advice, I try and make it as sound as clear and as effective as I can. And it's a good question when it comes to listening to the body there's a few um, a few things I think about when you ask that question. One is sort of differentiating the difference between good pain or like productive pain, productive stiffness, productive soreness, and this bad kind of pain, which is leading towards an injury, you could say. And so, we know that there's a bit of a difference between the two. Some can fuse or just become a bit of a gray area if it's one or the other. But generally speaking, there's some characteristics that can help decipher the two. We mainly know the, the feeling, the sensation of DOMS, like delayed onset muscle soreness. If someone's ever been to a gym or if they've done a fitness class or done a, a heavy or a fast kind of running session that's beyond what they're they're used to doing. It's a lot more challenging. The next day, they usually feel a bit stiff and sore. It's usually through the muscle. It's usually a bit more widespread. Um, And the onset is what we call delayed onset muscle soreness. So it's not during the run. It's not straight after. It's usually the next day, 24 to 48 hours afterwards. And it usually lasts for two to three days. That's kind of the characteristics of what we want for good pain. We know it's good pain because we need to go through this soreness. The body itself needs to go through this soreness to rebuild, get stronger. And then you do that bout of exercise again. It's a little bit easier because you've adapted to that process. So, those characteristics, like I said, the symptoms are delayed. The location of the pain is usually um, more to do with like the muscle. It's usually a bit more widespread. So, you can't really point a finger at where it sore. it's usually a bit more wide vague but then we know that it gets better within two or three days it's sort of you've overcome it in two or three days that's when the body rejuvenates gets better uh, then you've got the other side of things which is kind of like an injury so if something's leading to an injury you start to feel it during the run or straight after a run or the next day So we've got those sort of timeframes, those um, snapshots. If there's soreness there, you're probably thinking, oh, okay, during a run, definitely, if you haven't noticed something before and all of a sudden you're getting an irritated foot or an irritated calf, there's something to pay attention to. Not necessarily stop, not necessarily say I'm injured, but something just to pay attention to. Um, The location of the pain. So sometimes injuries are more... What we call focal, more localized to a specific spot, so you can either pinpoint to it or say that's, um, say yeah, it's a it's a bit more sharp in nature. The, you can say that the location of the injury, if you point to like a tendon or if you point to a bone or a ligament, that's usually tending to be like an injury or an injury developing. Mm-hmm. And so there's those kind of characteristics where you're thinking, okay maybe I should start paying attention to this because it might lead to an injury or other characteristics being like, Oh no, this is just the expected fitting the pattern of a delayed onset muscle soreness. So this is good compared to something that might be bad moving forward. If I don't pay attention to it.
1: I mean, what, what are those characteristics? Like, is there one or two things to like flag if, You know, you're, you're on your back-to-back long run, your mile, I don't know, back-to-back long runs of 14 miles. You're on your second day, mile seven, your calf just starts like, you know, screaming. It's either dehydration or a muscle pull of some sort. I mean, like, how do you go through kind of the step-by-step analysis of that situation?
0: Yeah, I guess every situation is a little bit different. Um, If I could try and come up with a generic kind of protocol, it'd be, okay.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Where
0: I'll try and come up with on the spot. So, we'd say like where is the location of the pain? Is it, without knowing too much about like your anatomy, is it the muscle belly itself? Um, Is it like widespread through the, the muscle belly? So, is it the entire calf? Or is it like this one spot in the calf that is painful, um, because if it's that one spot, then it's most likely going to be like a an injury or a tear or something. But if it's more widespread, it's more to be like a muscle strain, like this, or a cramp, or something that's um, like you say dehydration or some like fatigue factor. Then we need to ask, okay, besides the widespread or like the focal, if it's on the tendon, so if we're using the calf in this example, is it further down where it starts to become the Achilles? Um, Because we know that just general muscle strains don't reside in tendons. Um, If it's around the heel, so like bony kind of attachments, um, that can probably start to produce some sort of worry. But then you want to kind of test it out. Like if you're in a middle of a run, if you're in the middle of a race like this scenario, you can just treat it, okay, let me just pay attention to it and let me just see how it goes for the next couple of miles. Does it stay the same? Does it get better? Am I starting to limp? Um, do, have I lost confidence to kind of push off that area? And it's all about this analysis. And sometimes you can find, um, especially if you you talk to ultra runners, sometimes you can have a pain and then you just pay attention to it, see how it goes, and it just goes away. And then you just continue. Um, and then you have yeah. some some injuries that just stay there and then they, they don't get worse. They just stay the same. And that can be okay because you're still confident to kind of push off that area. You're definitely not limping the severity of the pains a little bit. It's mild. So it's not affecting your running biomechanics too much. Um, so yeah, you want to pay attention to it, but that doesn't necessarily mean you need to stop running and you can just continue with your analysis throughout that run.
1: So selfishly I I ended my Leadville 100 mile race probably around mile 48 with a really really acute pain on the like middle side of my foot after pulling over and probably stepping on granite chunks a little awkwardly but my my flag to stop ra- to stop the race was I was severely limping and did not want to put any weight on that part of my foot. And I, I mean, I knew I couldn't run and it was highly acute to a very specific area. Is that, is that a logical reason to like assume there's some kind of acute injury there? Or is that because, because going off what you had just said, like it seems like that makes sense. Um, I mean, what what are your thought processes there with the foot? Is a weird, it's a weird part of us humans. Like, there's so many bones and muscles and ligaments. Like,
0: you, yeah, you know it better than probably anyone. <laughs> um, I, I think in that scenario, I think you've made the right decision um the because especially if you start limping and that injuries kind of that site is getting worse as soon as you start limping you're going to overload your body in other parts because your your biomechanics have been affected and what the body doesn't like is abrupt changes to what it's used to doing and so it's used to running a certain way and if all of a sudden you're limping or you're putting like pressure on a different part of your foot that to try and avoid that pain. Like I know blisters, people get blisters and they run differently. They place their foot differently on the ground and just overloads them because they're just not used to doing that. Um, That would probably be a call to to stop running. But we also know that during a race, um, most people are quite stubborn or most people just are really determined to finish that's when you need to weigh up this risk versus reward. Like how much does it mean to you to finish? Because hypothetically, there might be a chance that you persist through this foot pain and you get to the end and you finish and the next day it's a bit sore, but then two or three days later, you you feel okay, you're totally fine. That's the, the kind of reward side of things. You finish the race, everything's feeling good. The risk might be a stress fracture. The risk might be that it's worse and you've got to take several months off as opposed to a couple of days. And, but you don't know until you've actually gone through that process. You can't make that judgment call of how long the injury is going to take to get better when you're in the moment and it start. you start noticing soreness. And so, that's hard. when you need to weigh up. It's so, it's,
1: it's so hard. I mean, honestly, it sucks, especially with like, excuse me, um, especially with like a uh, life time like goal race Leadville 100 for me was super important I've been dreaming about this race for five years but the second I knew I had an acute pain that would mess up my cadence I, I mean are you of the opinion once your cadence gets messed up and I'm, I'm looking at 50 miles through some pretty tough terrain on the trails like I was thinking cartilage could be scraped off certain parts of my knee like to offset. And it just wasn't worth the risk of not running properly for like the next 20 years. Like, are you Mm. of that opinion or am I just being extreme?
0: Uh, No, I think you're, I think it's the, the cautious and sensible side of you. Like it's the, like I said, as soon as you start altering your biomechanics, a lot of people would know what it's like to have an injury like I've had several injuries in my in my running career, and I know to be injured but still have your mechanics unaffected. You can still notice it there, but you feel like your running stride is exactly the same. You're pushing off the ground exactly the same. Your cadence is exactly the same. Um, that's that's a totally different story compared to someone who's starting to favor one side or they're starting to um, alter alter their mechanics in a way that's just the hips are going to be put out of like the loads that are going to be going through the knees and through the, the hips are going to be altered. There's going to be one part of the body because you're trying to offload the sore part. Then you're theoretically overloading a non-sore part because the same load goes through your body. When you run, we're just dissipating. We're we're just shifting the load to somewhere else. So if that load gets shifted to somewhere else, uh, there's the theoretical increased likelihood of there being an injury to that overloaded spot. And so, yeah, you do need to be very careful, especially, like I say, if you've got 50 miles to go and then your mechanics are currently altered, then, yeah, it's setting you up for detriment down the track. And so I think you've made the right call there.
1: No, I I mean, thank you. I'll I'll pay you the extra money at the end, like we had talked about. Please do. For agreeing. (laughs) But no, I, I truly, that's what was going through my head. And it's just one of those, like, looking at the short-term belt buckle versus like the next 10 to 15 years of just suffering during running that I did not want to put myself through. Um, it was a tough call. Like truly it was a dream race, but I appreciate your insights there. I mean, bro, tell me. I'm Ethan Wayne, director of the John Wayne Cancer Foundation.
0: And I'm Molly, the race director for the John Wayne Grit Series.
1: My father, John Wayne, asked my family and I to use his name to help find a cure for cancer. So we started the GRIT series. It's a series of 5Ks, 10Ks, and half marathons that take place in the most beautiful and rugged landscapes across the Southwest,
0: including places where John Wayne shot some of his most famous movies. That's right.
1: And all the race proceeds go towards cancer research and prevention programs. We're asking you to join us and bring your courage, strength, and grit to the fight against cancer. For more information on a race near you, visit us at johnwayne.org. That's johnwayne.org. Stay dusty. Also, a big thank you to Tannery Outdoors. If you're interested, use uh, the promo code ULTRA10 for 10% off. But this is just a great company. You know, it's designed for runners by runners. Uh, the founder is an ultra runner and it's an all natural mineral based product, which in this era of, of sunscreen recalls and everything taking place there, it's just comforting knowing, um, this is, this is a, a good, honest company. And, um, it, it cares about the ultra running community. It cares about the trails and, In the national parks and state parks, I think 1% of their sales goes back into the park systems. And they they definitely support, you know, some really great ultra runners and ultra running podcasts. Big thank you to ExoSkin. So they have a new t-shirt. It's 100% cotton, two colors, black and neon green with white logo on the front. And a hashtag show us your skin and at ExoSkin USA on the back. They are $26.50 each without a discount available, but still just really appreciate their support. So check out the show links um, for that link to ExoSkin. Tell me about this book that you wrote. What, not to totally shift out of injury prevention, because I know it's probably part of your book. What inspired you to write this book? And what inspires you to help educate and teach people?
0: So, this ebook that I've just released is actually volume two of um, another another volume, I guess. So I've got volume one and volume two. So this one is all about injury, increasing your injury performance. So it's how to strive for an injury-free PB personal best, and it comes off this. It stemmed off volume one, which volume one was learning the universal principles to reduce your risk of injury or overcome your current injury. And that's kind of what got me on to starting the podcast as well. Like the volume one around injury prevention covers 10 chapters on 10 lessons every runner needs to know in order to reduce their risk of injury. And the first 10 episodes of my podcast covers each one of those chapters and just delves into a little bit more detail. But more recently, now that I've had you know, 160 plus podcast episodes is I want to have another another go at having a volume two, which talks about running performance. Because it, like a lot of runners, you, you talk to the goals that any runner has is to reduce their risk of injury or overcome their current injury or to increase their running performance. And so I want to use evidence-based principles to for a runner to learn if they wanted to increase their running performance safely or in the safest way possible. So um, I used the example or the the parable within the book of someone training for a marathon and trying to get their marathon PB, but the same principles can apply to a lot of um, distances, a lot of different types of running in order for them to increase their, their speed safely. So um, that's kind of what got me into to volume two of the book.
1: I mean, you've only done 160 episodes, so <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm glad I'm slightly ahead of you there. Uh, what <laughs> What's been the most popular, like chapter or episode of Volume One? And then I want to hear more about Volume Two, also.
0: Okay. Um. How about like I might actually just pull up the the all the chapters of um my ebook and. Because I, I love talking about these chapters. I love talking about like if someone's intrigued and they just want to listen to the first 10 episodes of the podcast, they can do so. But I think True. one of the um, the biggest principles that I constantly talk about on the podcast is this concept called the pain rest weakness downward spiral when it comes to running injuries. And so allow me to explain that. <laughs> so if someone gets if someone gets an injury, uh, let's just say they will use the calf as an example. Um, if someone's running, they've overloaded themselves, they've ran too fast or done something and their calf is now sore. Sometimes someone's innate kind of instinctual habit is to just completely rest that injury. They say, okay, I've overdone myself. I know I've had this training error. I've done too much. Now this calf is sore. Let me just have a week off and I'll try starting, I'll, I'll start a run in a week's time and hopefully it's resolved itself. Hopefully the body's done its job of just healing, naturally just healed and let me just see how things go. We need to realize that when an injury is is painful, those structures, they're very sensitive to load. They're very... Um, they're very sensitized is what we call it. And so you can cu- you currently can't tolerate the same amount of load that you once used to. So let's just say they've run 10 Ks. They're used to running 10 Ks. All of a sudden they've ran 20 and now they're sore. That, that structure, that calf muscle, that calf complex can no longer tolerate those current levels while it's in this sensitized state. It's currently weaker than or just in, this, in the short term. And so what you've done is in making the decision to stop running and just have complete rest is you're tackling this situation with further rest and further weakening that structure, which is not what we want. And so what people usually do at the end of the week is they then try and run their 10K run, but it's it's in a weakened state. And so it flares up again, symptoms flare up again. And because it's already weak and now it's flared up and it's more sensitive, it becomes weaker again. And so the runner would say, oh, they'd interpret it as, oh, maybe I've just come back to running too quickly. Maybe I need more time resting. And so they have another week or maybe two weeks off. While we're doing that, the structure itself is just getting weaker and weaker and weaker. This is what I call the pain rest weakness downward spiral. And it applies to a lot of tendon injuries. It applies a lot to, say, plantar fasciitis that they work down this downward spiral to the point where sometimes daily activities are now painful sometimes standing for long periods of time for plantar fasciitis is now painful sometimes only just breaking out into running for 5 minutes is now painful and it's only because they haven't recognized this concept and made the sensible decisions in the early days to combat this this pain rest weakness downward spiral because the goal is to try and catch it as early as you can in this spiral and then work your way back up. Ex- explain that
1: just uh, a little bit further in terms of the solution. And obviously, I recommend you, uh, the listener, checking out uh, Brody's podcast episodes on this topic. But so would you recommend instead of taking a week off, taking one or two days off and then testing it with, like, a one or two-mile type run? Or, or what, what kind of remedies do you typically recommend to your
0: listeners? Yeah, you're definitely on the right track there. It's um, – we – One of the first lessons that I teach runners is about their adaptation zone, making sure they recognize where their adaptation zone currently is because you want to train within that adaptation zone as often as you can in order to get stronger and then challenge yourself slightly more, do slightly greater distances, slightly faster speeds, challenge yourself a little bit more and chase that adaptation zone as you get stronger. When this site, this calf injury is... um, sore and painful it now has a new adaptation zone because it's weaker so its adaptation zone has dropped we don't combat it with complete rest we just need to find where that new adaptation zone is and so uh, yes you might want to take one or two days off particularly if it's a really sore injury if it's a really irritated tendon injury two days off, let the symptoms, let the irritation settle. But then we need to jump straight back in and try and find where that adaptation zone is. And that's where a coach or a, a health professional can come in. But in this example of a calf um, a calf strain or a calf injury, it might be skipping. It might be jump rope for you know 30 seconds and do 10 rounds of that. It might be a walk-run program. It might be doing uh, weighted calf raises. And there's going to be something that we can find that will make sure that you build up or maintain your strength without irritating those symptoms. And so we're constantly paying attention to symptoms, making sure that there's maybe a little bit of pain during, there's definitely no exacerbation of symptoms or flare up of symptoms after doing a certain bout of activity and it's definitely not a, a massive aggravation the following day but we test things out. We say, okay, how about you You try running for a couple of miles? Let's see how that goes. How about just mixing in a bit of walking in there as well? And if that flares things up, okay, how about uh, we just reduce significantly the amount of running and we just do a lot of walking and then maybe we do some skipping and then maybe we do some calf raises and just see, we pay attention to how symptoms go. There's no strict like formula to getting a car uh, getting a sore calf back to pain-free running it's all about putting on your scientific hat testing something out paying attention to symptoms on the way and if you responded favorably let's just do a little bit more and then just slowly building upon that until you return to uh, the running dosage that you were at pre-injury and then just trying to strengthen up and strengthen the capacity as much as you can until you, you're you're Continuing with the uh, the running plan that you had before that injury arose. So for
1: your your volume two, and I haven't gone through the uh entire the ebook on that. Um which chapter are you most proud of? Like which chapter do you think was like most thought provoking and most interesting to you personally, I want to hear more about that chapter.
0: Um, I think when it comes to the benefits that the runner might uh, the runner probably doesn't realize is um, I, I guess when it comes to say running technique and like s- shoe selection, um, because there are uh, there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to a running technique and what type of shoe will help increase running performance or what the science shows. And so, a lot of people think that when it comes to running technique for performance, they think they need to do like training drills or they need to like, there's like this one perfect form, one perfect stride, one perfect technique that a lot of people will thrive in. Um, but the research doesn't show that at all especially when it comes to running efficiency running mechanics we have that um, we do know that there are certain characteristics that someone might elicit that we need to change in order to increase their efficiency so we know that cadence is a, is a big one um, so cadence is uh, the optimal cadence is different from every individual but in the small percentage of people who have very low cadences, increasing that to something more optimal for them will help increase their their stride efficiency will help reduce their amount of braking force and will help improve their overall running economy um so we're not talking about heel striking to forefoot striking we're not talking about that we're not talking about um their step width we're not talking about their arm movements we're just mainly just making slight adjustments to their cadence and their efficiency just improves and now
1: can I, oh. can I totally interrupt you here? Go for it. When I went after the Triple Crown into like probably peak form for my personal body and just felt like a natural runner for the first time in my entire life and then COVID hit, so I'm back to probably prior to that, my cadence was exactly 180. And I, I've read all the books and they're all like, you know, ideal cadence is 180, blah, blah, blah. And I was just, I was sort of shocked because every run I go on, I was hitting like fast mile times, even on some like, you know, 400 plus feet of gain for 5k type runs. Every run I'd come back and it was like 179 to 181. It was just, phenomenally close to the average. Is that my stride that's just like lengthening to make things efficient or like why the hell did my body all of a sudden line up to the perfect average? Because I'm five, seven. I normally have to run twice as hard as any tall fast guy. (laughs) Like what Uh what was
0: going on there? So, when i graduated uni as well the and we were learning about running technique and stuff and things the magic number was 180 and you look it up it's very common if you just search cadences people say everyone should strive for the magic number that is 180 to help improve your stride efficiency and the only the only time that's been extrapolated or the only time it's been used in science or where that kind of number generated from was they looked at Olympians, they looked at like world elite runners and they just looked at their cadence and the average was 180. And so they said everyone strive for 180 <laughs> and that's where they got the number from. There's no Seriously? research behind wow, it. Yeah. That's crazy. No research behind it whatsoever. But, um, we now know, we now have some studies to show what the general, um, Guidelines are for cadence, and it depends on the individual. We know that very tall, very lanky people, their optimal cadence is lower. There's a lot lower than 180. Uh, and We know that (laughs) makes me feel a lot better about myself. (laughs) Yeah, but we also know that a lot of short runners, their ideal cadence, their optimal cadence, might be somewhere higher than 180. And so, it's it's very tricky. It's very hard to follow general principles, but most runners will fall within an ideal range of somewhere between 165, 185, somewhere in there. And so if anyone is below, if someone's below 160, almost all the time, I'd have them increase their cadence. If someone's 168, I'd probably say they're okay. I wouldn't, it wouldn't be the high on my priority list to change their cadence. I'd probably want to change something else. But that's, that's sort of where we've come to, that we know that 180 isn't the magic number. We know that not everyone would strive if they hit 180, um, but I, I'm exactly like you. So no matter what my speed, my slow run or my speed sessions, my cadence is always around 179, 180, but I'm different to another runner who might thrive somewhere else on that, within that, that range. And so I I just finished doing a podcast episode on cadence and how it doesn't necessarily change when it comes to speed. Um, You you sort of illustrated before that your cadence, no matter what terrain, what speed, it stays pretty consistent. And you you smack bang on, The, the research shows that people who are running and not full out sprinting, they change their speed by increasing their stride length. So they push off the ground a little harder and their their step is a little bit um, greater, so um, their steps are just just a, a wider range. But their cadence stays the same. Their cadence stays very very similar, and that's that's how someone might uh, that's how someone would change their speed when it gets to sprinting. Um, and you look at like track athletes. You look at one hundred meters, two hundred meters. There 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 reaches a tipping point in their speed where. Their stride length um, almost stays the same. They can't take larger, they can't take larger strides. And so how they get faster is by increasing their cadence. And so there's a tipping point where cadence stays completely still when you increase your speed. And that reaches this tipping point where the stride length then stays consistent, but the cadence goes up. Um, but that's up in, I think they said. Uh, 8 meters per second, 20%. 8 to 9 meters per second was that tipping point. And so you're looking at extremely fast speeds.
1: I can't get my cadence over like 220, I want to say. But I, I can honestly, I can tell that I'm out of shape. As weird as it sounds, I can tell COVID took me down nearly 10 steps. Like my, my cadence is now nearly 172. 170 172 174 it's ranging its range went down to about 172 being somewhat out of shape as opposed to 180 was like kind of the pinnacle i mean does that make sense and then i also want to revert back to how does this all affect injury prevention like if if a runner sees their cadence slow down or speed up, um, is there any correlation to injuries?
0: Okay, a few things to unpack there. So, you, you talk about increasing, um, like your cadence has reduced since you've had like uh, reduced fitness levels. Okay, and 10,
1: 10 pounds on my body. Okay, yeah. yeah
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> And you'll also see runners who, who look through their Strava and they say, oh, when I run really slow, my cadence actually drops. And that's just a common experience for a lot of runners. They say, when I do my slow run, my cadence is around 160. When I do my fast runs, my cadence is around 180. So it goes against what the science shows, which says that cadence remains consistent. What I believe is going on is that people, when they've reduced their speed or when people reduce their fitness, they become quite sloppy. They start running a little bit sloppy and sloppy yes. means that their yeah. cadence will slow down. And so, um, whether that's them feeling a bit lazy or maybe they're trying to run lazy, um, there's still something to be said of, you still should be having a higher cadence or an optimal cadence during your slow runs, because you're picking your steps up, you're activating your hips a little bit more, and you're just ticking the legs over and having a more efficient stride. And that's why I, when I do my slow run, I still f- concentrate on technique. I concentrate on not getting, not feeling lazy, not feeling sloppy. I'm still light when I hit the ground. I'm still quite um, energetic. I have like a, a, a certain purpose when I run, but even though it's really, really slow. And so that's probably why the cadence stays the same. But if someone's treating it like a slow run, they slap the ground pretty hard and they're kind of spending a lot of time going from one side to the other, That's less ideal, it's less optimal, and that's probably why they're they're noticing that difference. But we also know that's very, very common that I've heard a lot from my listeners is that when they try and increase their cadence, they just run faster, which shouldn't happen. You should like someone says, oh, my cadence is actually 160, but I'm trying to work on increasing my cadence because I know that's good for me. But I'm just feeling out of breath. I'm feeling tired all the time. I feel like I'm running too fast. And that's because they're trying, like increasing your cadence. People will naturally pick up their speed, which shouldn't happen. They shouldn't really be doing that. Um, They should just be taking smaller steps. And so- what I recommend for someone who is in that situation is to, if they have access to a treadmill, a treadmill is perfect for working on your cadence because the speed stays exactly the same unless you want to run into the front of the treadmill or if you want to fall off the back. If you want to stay on that treadmill, the speed is going to stay consistent, but you can alter your cadence and just go through some technique training with that because your speed's going to stay exactly the same, but your cadence can alter and you can change your cadence by... Listening to a metronome or just like listening to a beat, listening to music at a certain um, beats per minute. Um, that could be quite nice as well. And then that gets me into your question around reducing risk of injury. There's those who are most likely to have a very low cadence, they're most likely to have what we call an overstride pattern. So they're more likely to contact with their heel, which is okay. Contacting with the heel is fine. But if you contact with that heel far in front of your body, that's going to produce an unnecessary braking force in your running pattern. And if we want to increase running performance, and if we want to reduce your risk of injury, you need a very efficient stride. So we, we want to really reduce those braking forces as much as we can. One way we can do that is when you very first make contact with the ground, instead of it being very far in front of your body, it's closer to underneath your body, close to your center of mass. And so in order for us to do that, increasing your cadence will naturally improve that that stride, naturally improve that, that overstride because people simply just don't have enough time to reach out in front of them if their goal is to step 168 steps per minute. They simply don't have that time to reach out and so they they find themselves picking themselves up a bit quicker, taking shorter steps, and that will just naturally naturally um improve and their economy, their efficiency will just naturally improve alongside it.
1: I mean, do you have advice for for people running past like my cadence picks up if I'm running past like two like highly attractive females? Or like for my female listeners, if there's like a, a male who's just strutting it out without a shirt on, their cadence—I'm just <laughs> totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Sorry, <laughs> I'm trying to throw you for a loop. Um, I mean, what what um, what other parts of your volume two are you most proud of? Just to be like real choppy with the the segue there. I, <laughs> Volume Two. It, it seems like you are really happy with it, though. Of your
0: ebook, I am very happy. I try, I try to really think about the content that I produce, and like it's very methodically thought out. And then when it's put to fruition, it's it's come out into a book that I am extremely proud of. It. Um, I think the ones I am most proud of are the ones that runners don't necessarily know a lot about. They don't, or it goes to the contrary of what they initially believe. Um, so if I was to say one of the common misconceptions when it comes to running is that runners shouldn't be implementing some form of strength training, um, shouldn't be doing, uh, I should ask, Rob, do you do any strength training? Do you do any, do you lift any weights?
1: I, a very, very minimal. Uh, yeah, and if I, I so. do, if I do it is body weight, uh, centric like i i truly especially for like the 200 milers i i see guys that uh have excess muscles and it's just like it just doesn't make sense for the extreme limits of ultra running um but no it, it, it also depends on your age right like it's i i've heard people um people say that like you start losing muscle mass after i think it's age 40 or 45 and so to be honest with you i mean i don't have that much uh, that much extra time but then i'm also looking at my uh my age and i'm thinking all right like 40s coming up here quick like maybe i do need to get a game plan together
0: <laughs> yeah Um, And I should say like the science doesn't necessarily cover those ultra runners, but endurance running like marathons, um, it's right up there. And so this is why I love these sort of chapters and love talking about these sort of things, because there's a lot of misconceptions, but also um, myths when it comes to strength training. People think that they're going to put on too much muscle mass or they feel like... They're an endurance athlete, therefore all their all their training should be focused on endurance. Like if they were to um, go into the gym, or if they were to start strength training, it should be body weight. It should be high reps because that's training the muscle for endurance, which is exactly what we want when it comes to ultra races. Um, and this is why I love I love busting these sort of myths. the The research shows that if your strength training sessions are More to the heavier side of things. So if you were to do squats, lunges, deadlifts, calf raises, and you were to focus on the the lower rep range, somewhere around the eight to ten. So you've put on you've you've um, loaded up the weights that by the time it gets to nine reps, it's extremely tough. By the time it gets to that tenth rep, is probably your last rep. You probably couldn't do an eleventh. That is very heavy it's quite heavy that's kind of the rep range you should be eventually aiming to get to in order to increase your running endurance performance and there's a, there's some really nice research around this taking a whole group of runners marathoners getting them to do certain exercise regimes some being body weight some being strength um low rep range, like I was describing, some being strength plus plyometrics. And then they all have a look at how they perform marathon-wise, like really long distances. And the ones who lift weights are the ones that are going to outperform the ones who do body weight. And so, like I say, like within those studies, it's not necessarily ultra running, but the science will then show that challenging your muscles, like waking up your muscles to fire differently, like just totally doing something out of what's ordinary doing will help optimize how it performs. Yeah. 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 And so, I totally agree. The, um, and so a lot of people think that if they go into the gym, they start lifting heavy, they're going to put on muscle mass. They definitely, if you're, if you're doing a lot of cardio throughout the week and you're only just putting in two sessions of strength training, you may put on a little bit of muscle mass, like maybe a couple of pounds at max, but What scares people is they see gym goers, they see bodybuilders and they see the bodies they have and they say, that's not a runner, but keep in mind, they're training, they're doing strength training six times a week. They are eating ridiculous amounts. They are doing zero cardio and that's how they're getting that body. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So so I'm going to totally shift shift gears on this topic. How many pull-ups do you think Kipchoge could do?
0: Uh I'm gonna say two. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so during during his film, I think it's what is it, Kipchogi the Last Marathon Mar- Milestone, can't talk. Um I'll probably cut that out. So during Kipchoge the last milestone I see him doing like tons of core exercise. And again, the guy I, I mean tricep bicep does not look like he could do more than two or three like is Kipchoge in your opinion do you think he needs to do more of the uh, the higher intensity like weight training exercises at his he's my age he's 37 I think Um, should he be doing more in terms of the weight training as opposed to the Aerobic.
0: I think Kipchoge should be doing exactly what he's currently doing. I'm not going to be the one to say that he should do any anything different.
1: <laughs> that was that was well positioned. Um, I, I would agree.
0: I think um, there's when it comes to like the the studies, what the literature shows, like we're not we're not getting the elite athletes and saying oh, you say that if I should do calf raises, like weighted calf raises, it will increase my leap. Um, if there's a study that gets two groups of 100 people, some do calf raises, uh, weighted calf raises, some don't do calf raises. And then they see their their jump time or their jump distance before and after the study. And the ones who do the strength training increase their, their um, vertical leap. But then you say, well, LeBron doesn't do weighted calf raises. Why shouldn't like, <laughs> yeah. what, what's the point? Kind of an outlier. <laughs> There's a, we really, like, I'm just following the research. We. I don't necessarily follow what the best, literally the best in the world is doing um, when it comes yeah. to, nor do I think that because his genetic advantage and he's just this outlier <laughs> best in the world, not everyone should be doing what he's doing. They're going to fall to pieces. They just don't have the, the structural integrity. They don't have the, the same physiology. They don't have the same genetics. We do know that different genetics, people favour different strength training, different volumes, different like intensity distributions based on your genetics. Um, and so – It's very very hard to extrapolate. Okay, Kipchoge is doing this, so everyone should be doing it. Um, it, It's a very very tough conversation to have. It
1: it was it was an extreme extreme example. Um, I I just I like making you feel uncomfortable and conversational (laughs) here. But it's very good to talk
0: about, though. I should say that it's it's a good conversation to have because it's a lot of um, it's a very common like rebuttal to. To encouraging strength training for runners because I hear it a lot and I do get interviewed on other podcasts that say the exact same thing like the the elite Kenyans aren't doing strength training so why should I it's a it's yeah. a um, it's something that's, that's very commonly come up and so I'm kind of prepared to to answer it as well and um, yeah it's 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 good that we address it because a lot of the listeners will be having the same thoughts as well.
1: Totally, totally. And that's, that's why I brought it up. I mean, so weight training for ultra runners is sort of scary in regards to potentially tensing up muscles, tendons, and possibly causing injuries. So just to circle back to like a lot of where we started, um, where does the literature and, and what is your opinion on combining weight training with ultra running kind of connect like is is there a direct correlation to more weight training causing more injuries for ultra runners or is it uh contrary to that kind of like probably common connection
0: when it comes to the literature there hasn't been a study done to um hone in on ultra runners and strength training, like I said, the, the studies usually just have the marathon distance to, to kind of, I guess, represent endurance athletes or endurance sport or endurance running. Um, so ultra is, another kettle of fish that the research that I know of hasn't explored, but from what I know about strength training, if someone's doing If someone's not strength training and they're doing high mileage ultras and getting injured, um, my guess is that they actually need to probably run less days and substitute it with something different because we know that the most running, almost every running related injury is due to overuse. It's due to doing the same thing over and over and over again until eventually something breaks down. If you, if you work within that adaptation zone and if your recovery is optimized, then that's going to be fine. You're going to listen to your body. It's going to feel like you've, um, you're feeling good and you've hit a good stride. You continue with that. But if you're constantly breaking down, um, especially I should say like if someone's in their fourth decade, fifth decade of age, sometimes sixth, dec- sixth decade of age, you really need to start strength training, especially the calf complex because that's going to eventually break down. It's very, very common. Um, But if someone's running six, sometimes seven days per week and they find they've been injured three times, like they've had three injuries in the last 12 months, reasoning would say you need to take out at least one day, probably for a rest day, and you might want to take out a day to do some form of cross-training while you're doing some form of cross-training, it might as well be strength training because that has shown to increase your um, mechanics, It's shown to increase how your your muscles utilize oxygen and how it utilizes different loads, challenges the capacity in different ways and improves your efficiency, improves your running economy, how you utilize oxygen, all these sort of benefits to go along with performance. And so there is an argument there to show that for someone who's thriving in ultras and hasn't done any strength training, you can probably continue with that. But if someone's been dealing with a lot of injuries, if someone's been really lacking in their performance, losing a spring in their step, if they're getting into their fifties and really shuffling along and not really getting uh, that pounce or that spring in their step, there's argument to show that, and there's evidence to show that they probably should be implementing some form of strength training.
1: We got five or ten minutes left. How many how many podcasts have you been on, by the way? How many people I have, have interviewed you? Maybe ten I 20? have been on 30. close
0: to probably about fifty podcasts.
1: Good lord. <laughs> Good lord. Is that that's becoming like a full time job for you probably in itself?
0: Well, my I love educating runners. I love trying to dispel myths like educate runners on what the evidence shows and what what how to run smarter how to train sensibly how to reduce risk of injuries that's a huge passion of mine and so getting onto other podcasts and talking about it just helps bring energy like i I said before we started recording i want to spend a lot of time around things that give me energy rather than deplete my energy and going onto other podcasts and chatting helps generate a lot of my energy so i'm going to be bouncing off the walls after this
1: you ever, ever watch that show, Mythbusters? Like those have, scientific yeah. <laughs> guys? Used to be my favorite. I, I mean, you might as well have started like running Mythbusters, right? Oh,
0: uh, that'd have been good.
1: Like, you're very <laughs> scientific minded. I love it. Um, when you get clients asking you questions, do you ever correlate what kind of foods they're eating? Like, are you seeing a higher injury rate in... Uh, Guys that are doing keto or guys that are, gals that are doing, like, a vegan diet, is there any correlation between diet and injury rate? And then also, uh, just for personal, you know, personal question here, alcohol consumption, like, if you drink beer versus not drinking beer, is there a differential, like, injury rate? Like, are you just... Maybe not scientifically, just like yeah, seven or eight people out of ten are seeing this that I talk to. Like maybe more. Uh, let let,
0: let me unpack level. this. There's a few things to unpack, and I'll try and do it within five minutes. So,
1: oh, you only um, have thirty seconds. Okay, podcast. I'll try my You've been best. Been on 50 <laughs> other podcasts.
0: <laughs> I have. Um, When it comes to diets and when it comes to people trying different diets, I don't – I'm not a nutritionist, not a dietitian. I I stay away from the science of that. I do think that every individual thrives on their own like different – like what works for someone might not work for another, um, but I do rely on asking dietitians, and I have the privilege of uh, hosting or um, people appearing as a guest on my podcast around certain topics around fasting and um, different sort of diets. But when it comes to nutrition and runners that I see, um, if there's been much of a change, you can almost, you can almost certainly rely on uh, the equation of, They've either overtrained or they're under-recovered. So runners have either – they're injured due to a running-related injury, not like a trauma-based, like they haven't rolled an ankle or been tackled or twisted something. They've had an injury, an overloaded injury, because they have had an abrupt change in their training. So running too fast, doing too much too soon, um, changing their shoe type too quickly, too abruptly, changing their terrain too abruptly – the, the overtraining side of things or the under-recovery side of things. And that's where nutrition can come into it. And so under-recovery is definitely sleep. It's definitely stress levels. It's yes. definitely some to do with nutrition and hydration. So whether you're under-fueling yourself or under-recovering yourself through nutrition, that can be said. You mentioned alcohol. Um, I talked to the researcher Christy Ashwanden She has... Um, Good to go is her book. And the, I think it's one of the very first chapters is around beer, beer drinking for runners and the benefits of beer drinking for runners. I've heard it's and, like the
1: perfect, honestly, I've heard it's perfect, but
0: yeah, well, the the research was showing, I'm glad the research has shown this.
1: What um, it dehydrates you. <laughs> it does
0: dehydrate you, but it also has benefits in terms of switching you off the mental the mental effects that it has, it switches you, especially if you're like winding down, if you're drinking alcohol with friends and family, and you're settling yourself down, it's switching you into recovery mode. Whether um, but if you are in this really highly, if you exercise all day, but then you, outside of exercise, you're constantly stressed, constantly like um, in a stressful work setting or, You're just anxious about something. Your body's not switching into recovery mode. And so you're going to get overloaded very quickly, but sometimes what alcohol can do, especially
1: being overloaded causes just a higher susceptibility of injury. Is that what you're correlating? Yeah. So
0: your your body won't recognize the difference between external load, like running strength training um, load on your body and being physically, mentally stressed like the same hormones go through your body and you simply can't switch into recovery mode because you're constantly stressed. And so that's why sleep and that's why unwinding, it's why it's the best recovery tool you can have because your body just switches into recovery mode because you don't get stronger. This is longer than 30 seconds, by the way. You don't get stronger when you do your running sessions. You don't get stronger during your strength training sessions. You get stronger in the recovery phase after that about that strength session,
1: I so two hundred milers taught me the importance of sleep. How like your muscles just can reset is it's phenomenal. It's truly phenomenal. So really quick, uh, CBD is is being used globally now uh, without any kind of you know like actual high from using CBD, and also melatonin. Have you have you kind of like researched into either of those and how those affect recovery or is it just whatever the hell puts you to sleep helps you recover? Like, is there one choice that makes it better for me to get to sleep? Whether I'm smoking a joint or, or using CBD, which I don't smoke by the way, using a CBD capsule, using melatonin or just having a beer and winding down is there any best course of action to wind down so that I can maximize my, my recovery after a hard run
0: that that will depend on the individual like I 100% agree with you and the science will show Sleep, good quality sleep is the number one recovery strategy you have. If you are an ultra runner, like the recommended average sleep is eight hours. But if you're an ultra runner and you're doing in a lot of mileage, your recommended is probably going to be close to ten. Especially when it comes close to like race day and like the pressures amounts, both physically and mentally. But
1: in film crew. Yeah. <laughs> Extra. <laughs> anything hour. sorry.
0: Anything that... Um, So if you were to get all the other benefits of recovery, so we're looking at stretching, we're looking at hot, cold therapies, we're looking at hydrotherapy, you're looking at foam rollers, massage balls, anything of those descriptions, if you were to stack all of them up together, the benefits of all of them, they're going to get nowhere near as close to the benefits you get with a good night's sleep. And so that's the importance of sleep. Anything that gets you more sleep, whether that is CBD, whether that is, Breathing exercises, whether that's just going to bed earlier, whether it's just waking up later, whether it's napping um, like a couple of times a week, anything, any strategy that you use that helps get you to sleep or sleep for longer is going to be best for you. I know for me, I use breathing techniques. I use um, a couple of strategies along those lines and I just fall st- straight asleep. I used to, I, I wear an aura ring, so I track my sleep pretty closely and used to find that. If I was to answer emails or be working late into the night, I'd really struggle to unwind. So, now I've just made the strategy switching things off 5.30 p.m. I'm switched off. That blue light, man. Yep. Um, I've just worked with different strategies that work for me and like people wake up in the middle of the night, people struggle to get to sleep, people wake up too early for different reasons and so, you need to find those reasons, investigate (laughs) those reasons and find strategies that work for you.
1: How about a screaming three-year-old or screaming oh, yeah, six-year-old <laughs> or, or one waking up the other? Um, yeah. I'm going to end with one or two more questions and I really appreciate all your time. I know this is the first podcast you've been on uh, beyond mine or beyond yours. So. <laughs> um, what's the weirdest question you've been asked on another person's podcast? Have you been asked like just... I, I've been on... Not fifty, not yet. And I try to say yes to every every opportunity that comes up. Because, like you, I mean, my goals, my goals for my podcast are just to inspire people. And you mean your your goals are very similar. Just educate and you know get people excited. Have you been asked like a bunch of like super awkward questions or? I've got the perfect one. Okay, let's hear it. Let's hear it. So,
0: um, I I was on another podcast that had like a panel, and they're they're jokesters. They they love talking about running, but they just like having a lot of fun and drinking beers as well. And they all <laughs> talk about moments when they've crapped their pants while running, and they've asked. They're like, oh. you're, "You're not you you're too." You're too safe of a runner if you haven't. So, Brody, have you ever? Has that ever happened to you? And I was just caught straight off guard. It was, I was definitely not expecting it. Let's say that.
1: Oh boy, that's that's a (laughs) whole podcast episode. (laughs) That's that's hilarious, though. I I bet you weren't expecting that. I I wasn't, but I I mean, you've been fifty podcasts can go a variety of directions, you know, like. (laughs) It could be like the, the running and and cat grooming podcast. Like I don't, <laughs> podcasts get very specific, so um, there's a bunch of different directions they could go. Um, but yeah, don't eat too much sugar while you're running, and then you won't have an embarrassing answer to that. question. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll, I'll finish with um, just generally just i mean i want to hear one last question on injury prevention just like if you were to if you were to summarize everything that you've experienced personally and with clients like is there one last word of like words of wisdom for people on injury prevention that you could share and then i might have one last follow up mostly yeah. about like when you now no, I'm not going to ask that.
0: <laughs> the The number one principle I always come back to, which is the very first episode of my podcast, is understanding your body's adaptation process and making sure you take full advantage of that process rather than um, <laughs> becoming too mixed up. And so, it's you need to recognize that your body has a certain capacity, a certain tolerance to your your current running volumes, and so we want to make sure that we don't. Have too much of an abrupt shift in your training in order for the body to to be too too abrupt spark too much load and then start breaking down. So we all know mileage is one of them. We all know running too fast beyond your capacity is one of them. We know that. Uh, well, we might not know, but change in terrain. So if you're used to running on the flats, then all of a sudden you're doing too many hills, which is an abrupt change um, changing footwear. So if you're used to wearing supportive shoes and while minimalist shoes are okay, you need that adaptation. You need time to transition into that shoe. You need the time to adapt to that shoe. But a lot of people have too much of a shift. Then they start getting injured because it's loading your body in different ways. And so if I have, if I was to summer up injury prevention, it's avoiding those injuries. It's avoiding those abrupt changes while optimizing recovery at the same time so making sure you're getting good sleep make sure you're managing your stress levels and then in most cases if, if all of that's going to a T um, theoretically it's putting your injury risk very very close to zero
1: it's beautiful there, there's not many people I could talk to uh, on the planet that could summarize it that succinctly that was episode 187 I hope you guys enjoyed it big thank you to Brody for taking so much of his time. So definitely check out his podcast. He has me on. And there's one or two insights that I hadn't really thought about until Brody and I were talking on his podcast. So I think it might be worth your time. Um, There's Again, there's some unique things that uh, we discussed there. And I just really appreciate collaborating with other podcasts is always fun. And I'm always just trying to help educate, entertain you. And I, I love that Brody's so focused on injury prevention and almost dedicating his life to uh, injury prevention for runners. So it's awesome what he's doing. Uh, big thank you to you Patreon supporters. You guys make this all work. I really enjoy the closed Facebook group conversations. You get sneak peeks before the episodes are released. And those are without commercials. just generally we're putting together a patreon first hat so we're going to put together a trucker hat some other things so you guys already know but i just really appreciate you guys you make this all work big thank you again to exoskin tannery outdoors and the john wayne cancer foundation their grit series most importantly don't forget to enjoy your training see you soon